Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gordon Burghardt. He is alumni distinguished service professor in the departments of psychology and ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Tennessee in the US. His research focus has been on comparative studies of behavioral development in animals with special attention to reptiles, bears, and the evolution of play, as well as historical and theoretical issues in ethology and psychology. He has edited or co-edited six books and authored the genesis of animal play, testing the limits. So Dr. Berger, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. And mine too. Okay, great. So today we're going to focus mostly on play. So first of all, what is play from, let's say, an evolutionary and developmental psychologist perspective? Well, um, we have to start with what is play to begin with. And before we can start asking questions about what is it for and how did it evolve and, and, and those sorts of things. And uh, one of the problems that I discovered when I got into play was uh, that uh, the definitions of play didn't really help us too much because uh, they just explained what we already thought was play, like dogs, you know, with dogs and cats and, uh, and, and, and chimps. And so uh, we needed to have a way of identifying play in all kinds of animals. Usually we thought, well, play is only found in mammals and maybe some birds, big-brained animals. That was, it was a sign of intelligence. Uh, but if you look at it more broadly, uh, a play has a variety of characteristics uh, to it. And I wanted to try to come up with something that would explain all kinds of play. Now, with animals in particular, we talk about three main types of play. A locomotor play, jumping, you know, dancing, running around, uh, object play, play with objects, and uh, social play. And social play is the type of play that uh, is most commonly studied, and it's the one that we are sort of most attracted to when we see dogs and uh, playing and so on. Uh, so I came up with uh, different criteria, but put together all the literature that was out there, there was like 30 some definitions of play. And I extracted what I considered to be the key elements. And uh, these would include uh, that the behavior is not functional necessarily in the context in which it's expressed. So if you see play fighting, animals that are playing and fighting, it doesn't mean that they're practicing fighting, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have any functional consequences. It could help the animal uh, get exercise and get the heart moving and get an eye motor coordination and that sort of a thing. So the function may not necessarily be what it looks like. And that's uh, one of the things. Uh, we also know that play is something that animals do voluntarily or spontaneously. It's fun, it's pleasurable. One of those terms uh, we sort of apply to uh, play. Uh, it's also something that's repeated um, more than once. If the animal just goes up to an object and touches it or pushes it, that's not play. It's maybe just checking it out, what it is. But if it starts engaging with it, doing things with it, uh, then um, that criteria might be satisfied. Uh, play is also... Uh, it doesn't look quite normal. It may be exaggerated or the animal may uh, 
and humans do it too, young, young kids, they may reorder the normal sequence in which behaviors occur. They may try out different ways of putting things together. Uh, and it also may occur earlier in the animal's life, earlier in development and ontogeny than it's normally needed. So the animal may very young engage in behavior involving, you know, courtship movements or uh, a feeding and hunting behavior, even in mammals where they don't have to do that on their own until they're much older. So you see behavior may be occurring earlier in life than it's normally needed for serious quotes uh, purposes. And the last criterion would be uh, that the behavior seems to occur when the animal is in a relatively safe, uh, well-fed, um, non-stressed state. Doesn't mean that stress is not uh, important. In fact, in my first writings to play, I used boredom as a uh, as one of the criteria that uh, we often see when animals play. And this is particularly true in, in zoos or captive animals where they're in a very sterile environment. And so uh, we see more play in captive animals that are otherwise well cared for than we do in wild counterparts where they have other lots of things going on in the environment. So um, we can sort of be, again, a little anthropomorphic about our own behavior. Sometimes we can engage in, you know, looking at computer games or doing things uh, when we're a little bit bored or uh, trying to figure out, you know, what to do. Yeah. So those uh, are the five criteria that I think when we see them satisfied, uh, regardless of what animal we're looking at, and when we have those criteria, we can see that uh, octopus uh, play, fish, uh, some fish, lizards, turtles, not just mammals and birds mm -hmm. engage in this behavior. That's yeah. Right. yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, but going back to my question regarding the evolutionary basis of play, I mean, is there any point in evolution where we can concretely start talking about play? I mean, is there a particular uh, a species or a particular, uh, I'm not sure I, uh, I should call it a, a clade or something like that, where play first started? Well, I think there are people who have thought that play, once it evolved, then it was there and it continued in the lineages of following. Uh, but uh, I think that play is a very heterogeneous phenomenon. And so it appeared in evolution many times, repeatedly, including in invertebrates. Uh, a lot of invertebrates, sponges and so on, <laughs> they don't necessarily play, we don't have any evidence, uh, but some insects do, octopus do, we have evidence for spiders. Uh, and then fish, not many fish, that we have good evidence for play, but some do. So uh, I think that play is a phenomenon that has evolved frequently and often um, maybe get lost subsequently, uh, but it is not something that occurred just once and then we can say this is the beginning of the evolution of play. Uh, Clearly, you have animals, invertebrates, and vertebrates both playing, and their common ancestors are what, 600 million years ago or more. Uh, it goes back a long time. And in the dark reaches where, where, how it started, who knows?
Yeah. Uh, so at a certain point, after my first question, you were talking about the criteria that you identified to uh, classify something, some sort of behavior as play. And the first one was that it's not completely functional. So, I mean, could you tell us more about that? Because for play to have evolved, doesn't it need to serve uh, some important function? Right. Well, the, the wording, I struggle on the wording of these criteria uh, for a long time. And uh, so it's incompletely functional in the context in which it is expressed, which is sort of the wording I came up with. And as I mentioned, the function or the adaptive value to the organism may not be what it looks like. Maybe in other aspects of of, uh, of the performance of the of the behavior, and so I think that's something we need to uh, I, I keep keep in mind. Uh, we did some modeling where we actually looked at some of the ideas that I've uh, developed on evolutional play, and uh, showed that play can actually evolve without any overt function. Uh, but once it's established, then it may become functional. So maybe a byproduct of other uh, behaviors uh, of the uh, of the animal. Um, and once but once it's there, it can then be um, developed, like the people doodling, you know, you're bored and you're sort of doodling in a class or something like that. And you're just drawing stuff. And then you look at it, oh, that's not bad. And then you start making some functional picture or something out of that. So something that started as sort of a random, not adaptive kind of thing, you're just sort of doing it, uh, can become transformed into something that uh, now has some possible purpose or value or and push this back into animal behavior, you could maybe see how that could work. Yeah. Um, in, in your work, and I guess the work of other people as well, I mean, you talk about different types of play, like, for example, locomotor, object, and social play. Could you tell us about that? Well, um, those are the three main types of play. And uh, at one time, people thought those were pretty distinct. And um, that maybe locomotor play, solitary locomotor play was sort of the ancestral type of play and then object play and then social play being the most advanced. Uh, but if you look at a phylogeny of, uh, of mammals even and uh, record which of those groups of animals have social play, object play, locomotor play, you don't find a pattern. So there are some animals where you can find pretty uh, good social play, uh, not much locomotor <laughs> uh, play, and vice versa, or animals that engage in a lot of object play, but not necessarily uh, locomotor or social play. Locomotor play, we, for instance, we may find in animals that are more prey species, like deer and elk and un ungulates, where, uh, you know, being fast and in terms of uh, escaping from a predator is really in, an important part. Uh, we may find object play more often in animals that are 
scavengers dealing with uh, you know carcasses and, and so on, or carnivores in general, animals that we call extractive foragers, those that got to pry under things, turn over rocks, uh, put their hands into like marmosets into uh, uh, crevices and trees to get sap or insects. Uh, and so the lifestyle of the animal may be an important uh, factor in the types of play that uh, we see in those species. That's interesting. So could we say that perhaps one of the functions of play would be for animals to develop certain kinds of uh, abilities that they will need to put into practice later on in their development or in their lives? Yeah, that actually was one of the first major theories of play put out by a fellow named Gruz uh, in the, about 1900, late 19th uh, century. And uh, it was called a practice theory, and it is still uh, commonly talked about uh, uh, today. Uh, one of the problems uh, that developed was that people who who were looking, for instance, at kittens playing with objects uh, and hunting them and, oh, they should be better hunters. And experiments were done by Pat Bateson and, and others uh, that, uh, and Tim Carroll that kittens that had a lot of experience in that predatory uh, play, object play, and others who were not exposed, not given that opportunity, they hunted equally well. So, um, and there's a variety of studies now that have come out showing that uh, the play does not help in the practice of that behavior that the, the play seems to uh, be simulating. Um, there are some exceptions, but overall, uh, the evidence is not really that great for uh, that skill development, uh, a theory of, of play. Mm -hmm. So, um, Another reason that people uh, got concerned about that is that if the play is helping you when you're very young to have skills later in life, then once you have those skills obtained, then you shouldn't play anymore. Now it is true that lots of animals play when they're young and adults you don't see it. But many animals, primates, bears, dogs, uh, us <laughs> humans are known for keeping playful attitudes and scientists in particular, perhaps, and artists uh, well into, you know, adulthood. And uh, that early formative experience can't be the only reason then for, for play to continue to exist. Yeah. Uh, and what you said, does it also apply to humans? I mean, if, for example, a child doesn't play that much during their, let's say, infancy, childhood, is it the case that perhaps some of their traits could become underdeveloped? I'm, I'm asking you this because there are, in developmental psychology, several authors, and I guess that one of the most prominent would be perhaps Jean, Jean Piaget that really focused their research on possibly the importance that 
play-ed in humans and children more specifically for the development of certain abilities, particularly social ones, for example? Well, I think play is certainly very important, and uh, particularly young kids. And I think one of the problems we have today is that uh, kids aren't getting outside and in recess and is being cut back because, you know, they want uh, kids to sort of be, do book learning and seat learning. And I think there's starting to be a change. Uh, we're starting to realize that animals are humans and kids getting out into nature and playing outside with each other. Uh, they do learn lots of different aspects about social interaction. Uh, kids who want to go end up going into engineering and science and so on, playing with objects, putting things together, taking things apart. Uh, these are all uh, aspects of life that uh, when you partake in them, it very well could be that they then, uh, like with the, the play origin that I mentioned, the doodling, start to have adaptive functions and help the child in many ways. Uh, so generally, having lots of experiences is better than not having many experiences. And so through play, uh, our kids get a lot of different uh, uh, experiences. Yeah, another interesting aspect that I read about in your work regarding play is that there are particular, let's say, behaviors and signals that animals send to the other one uh, to, for them to be able to identify play behavior uh, otherwise i mean they they could think that what they were going to do was in any way let's say serious and for example there are postures facial expressions vocalizations and so on that animals use to signal play behavior could you tell us about that well these are play signals and uh, uh lots of animals including humans, we, uh, we use verbal signals a, a lot, but uh, our dogs come up to me, do bows between each other and then start chasing and, and so on. So uh, there are these play signals. Now, lots of these play signals can also be used in other contexts and they've just been sort of also used in, in play. But some animals have uh, signals, like there's some mongoose, uh, mongooses that have a vocalization that's only used in play. It's only used uh, as, as a play signal. And uh, there are some others uh, that I studied bears quite a bit and I've raised some bear cubs uh, in my home for a while before we put them out into the large enclosures in, <clears throat> in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park here. And one thing that we discovered um, and uh, others have uh, also is that these bears are very playful, the bear cubs. And, but play is quiet. If the animals start getting annoyed with each other, one starts getting tired of the game and they start getting a little more aggressive, they'll start doing a vocalization and they'll have a vocalization that's sort of then a signal maybe to the other animal, hey, this I'm not viewing this as play anymore. Keep going and you're make it bit, <laughs> make it slap. And uh, when we played with the bears, we would wrestle with them and so on. Uh, again, when it got to the point where you started hearing a little vocalization, 
that was a time for us to back off because even when the bears are on hundred pounds, uh, they could do a lot of damage to us, you know, scratching and biting. So that was uh, something, not that I encourage people to play with bears, but this was something that many, many years ago when I first got into uh, studying play, uh, I had this opportunity and um, sort of pushed the limits. <laughs> uh, and uh, by the way, this just came to my mind. When we talk about play, is it mostly focused on what happens between two infants, for example, or more infants? Or can it also occur between adults and infants? Well, again, there are some species where there's a lot of uh, parent offspring play mother offspring, adult offspring play, uh, and a bunch of species where uh, you don't find it. And uh, you can actually use this in, in experiments. And uh, what uh, Serge Pellis, a, a, a friend and colleague who has worked on play a lot, and uh, others have found that uh, one way to look at the role of play is play deprivation, keep animals from playing. Well, if you deprive an animal socially, you keep it in social isolation so it can't play because with another uh, young rat, uh, well, you're doing a lot of other things. You're not just depriving it of play, you're depriving it of social interactions and all kinds of things. So um, one thing that you can do is raise a, a rat with just its mother and they don't play with each other. They groom each other, they sleep together, they have a lot of social interactions, but they don't play. And you compare those to um, rats that have an opportunity, even if they're socially kept separate, but you give them 30 minutes or an hour a day with another rat and they spend all that time playing. And then you can compare those animals with that play experience and those that, uh, uh, that don't have it. Uh, so then you can start to see, well, what is the role of play in, uh, as a function? Uh, Matt Cooper here at the University of Tennessee has been studying in Syrian hamsters for a great for many years using a social defeat paradigm in which uh, you pair a, uh, a hamster with another hamster that's bigger and stronger and sort of beats them up. You know, defeats, they, they interact in the fight, but the uh, uh, one hamster gets defeated and then tries to you know, run, run away. Okay, then you take them apart and you test it later, that, that hamster with a smaller, more immature or not a threat at all, yet now that uh, hamster that had been defeated is very fearful and uh, avoids this much smaller animal that's been introduced into its, its, its cage. And uh, so social defeat paradigm and animals really stressed. Well, Serge Pellis found that uh, these rats that were raised without having the opportunity to play, their, um, their brains developed in the medial prefrontal cortex. Uh, there's what we call dendritic pruning, that's a normal factor in the behavioral development, uh, you, uh, the dendrites get pruned in, in the brain. And if that doesn't happen, there are some problems. Well, he showed that there was a dendritic uh, pruning that did not occur 
if the animals could not play. So this was sort of a physiological uh, example of something that play was doing to the brain, or lack of play was doing to the brain. Well, what in Matt Cooper's lab, uh, we raised hamsters with their mom who doesn't play with them, or with peers who were they could play. And then we subjected those animals to that social defeat paradigm test uh, that they developed and found that as adults, those hamsters that were deprived of play were more prone to this social distress. Uh, and their brains did not have that pruning. Those hamsters that had the opportunity to play seemed buffered against the stress of this uh, social defeat paradigm, mm -hmm. as well as having the normal brain development. So this would be one example of a functional consequence of this social uh, play. In this case, buffering the animal from stress. And this could be something that uh, can be generally applicable uh, to uh, lots of species. That, that's one of, the, one of the functions of play that might be to help buffer you when things get hard or uh, misfortunes befall you. Yeah, uh, that dendritic uh, pruning that you talked about, does it occur in specific areas of the brain associated with certain specific functions? I, I was just wondering, I mean, if it was to organize the brain in specific directions, let's say. Well, um, I mentioned that this part of the brain that seems to be affected by the dendritic pruning is the prefrontal cortex. And the frontal cortex uh, in, um, in, in, in mammals and the animals is where behavioral inhibition develops and uh, that can be able to control things. So uh, rats, for instance, uh, that uh, have their cortex removed, right? The, the cortical areas of the uh, brain are uh, completely removed, play. They're motivated to play. They play in uh, a very similar ways. They have all the elements that uh, a normal rat has, but they do not change their behavior as they grow older to accommodate how the other animal is the play partner is responding and um, they are not able to uh, read the signals adequately of the other animals and so uh, but by not having that inhibitory they'll, they'll for instance they'll go in and uh, and an attack or uh, confront a rat that might be much stronger or uh, uh, more aggressive to it, and they don't seem to learn. Hey, I should, I should withhold. I should inhibit my behavior because it's going to trigger something I don't uh, particularly want. Speaking anthropomorphically. Mm -hmm. uh, another very interesting thing about play. I mean, I'm not sure if this is true for all species where we find play behavior, but it seems to take more time than things like sex and fighting. And this is interesting because, 
I guess that from an evolutionary perspective, we would expect uh, things to be the other way around, right? Yeah, I think this is something that's really interesting in that for many animals, uh, including a lot of rodents and so on, they spend more time playing, uh, particularly when they're young, uh, than other behaviors. Uh, that are the focus of so much research. People are really interested in sex and they're really interested in fighting <coughs> and foraging and predation and those things, yet the animal may not be spending as much time doing those behaviors as playing in certain times of its life. And yet scientists, <coughs> biologists, anthologists, and psychologists have pretty much ignored play, even though it seems to be so prominent. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One being that, well, it's, it's an anthropomorphic concept, which I think, you know, with the criteria we can uh, dispense with that. Uh, but since play seems to be involving fun, fun and, and pleasure and not being serious, therefore it's not a serious topic for scientists to study. It doesn't make sense, but I think that is behind the, uh, the reluctance that many people have had over the years to look at play, even though it's such a prominent part of the animal behavior. It's something we love to watch, right? I mean, there's something that's endearing and watching like a young moose. I remember seeing this at a, at a, at a zoo in Milwaukee, a uh, newborn moose, just doing its first kind of movement. You got that awkward kind of stuff. I mean, it's just engaging and to watch, you know, young kittens and, and, and dogs. Uh, we really love to watch that. So it's an endearing behavior, yet uh, one that until recently has not received the attention that it uh, that should have uh, because you just don't think that it's necessarily uh, a serious. Mm -hmm. In your work you focus a lot on reptiles and bears. Are there any new insights that you got about play from those species? Well my first, uh, I think my first publication where I got into the play literature uh, seriously was in response to uh, an article uh, that was uh, written on play, um, looking at functions of play in primates and uh, looked at play as a way of helping the animal deal with complex social life that it's going to be confronting because primate societies can be very social and complex. And uh, I had just finished looking at my bears and studying uh, uh, them. And here are animals that are probably the most playfulest cubs that you could imagine. And yet the social life of adult bears isn't at all like a primate, right? They, uh, they have the mother cub type bond, uh, but the males come in, you know, once a year mate with the females, every other year for, for most females, uh, and uh, then go off and uh, there's not really much of a complex social uh, interaction as adults. Yet you have these young cubs playing so much socially. Didn't seem to make sense in terms of this theory that they were going to use this behavior to uh, deal with a complex social adult life. So that started me thinking that play may have other reasons there might be something more going on here than uh, 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 just preparation for complex sociality. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, another question, I guess, would be, we've already mentioned three different types of play, uh, object, social, uh, uh, I mean, I can't remember the other one now, but... Uh, locomotor. Yeah, locomotor, is exactly. Um, could we say that play uh, has a lot of diversity in the animal kingdom? Oh, absolutely. So that's one of the uh, things that impressed me, that different species play in so many different ways. And when we get to humans, uh, you can talk about lots of other things that are, we consider uh, playful, you know, games and dancing and singing and uh, uh, joking and, and humor. Uh, but I think all those more uh, complicated types of play we identify in in, uh, in, in humans and, and, and children, we can find aspects or in other species uh, that involves similar kinds of things, but not to the same uh, extent, certainly. But uh, play in children and uh, involves many other things than uh, just a simple locomotor. So one of the things that uh, uh, struck me early on is that the social locomotor and object play are not that discreet because you can have games like tug of war, which involve an object, which involve the social <laughs> behavior and involve running around and locomotor uh, behavior. So uh, you can have these different type play types combined. And of course, in, in, in humans, uh, the richness and diversity is uh, even greater. But in other species, uh, we find that there may be very complex social play and yet not much complex object play and vice versa. So again, diversity is, I think, the uh, one of the hallmarks that we see in play in different species. I mean, a spider is going to play different than an octopus. Uh, an octopus with eight arms and so on can really do a lot more complicated things with its digits, with its arms, than we can. Uh, and uh, But an animal like a snake doesn't have many options in order to interact with things. So it's going to make it more difficult for us to even identify uh, uh, the complexity of its behavior, certainly, and uh, call this, and call it, call it play. Yeah. What about role reversals? Because there are species where um, animals, when they are playing, sometimes do this kind of thing, role reversal. Um, what happens there? And does it serve any particular function? Well, uh, role reversal is one of a really fascinating and important aspect of social play. And it's something that we can use to uh, distinguish uh, like play fighting from real fighting because uh, in uh, serious fighting, it's fighting for a resource or for dominance. And yet in social play, we find within the same session, the animals changing roles, one being on top, and then they break off and they roll over things again. And the other one sort of uh, gets on top. And the same thing with dogs and uh, a lot of animals, a social play involves this role reversal. Uh, it can also occur between species. So there's a video I sometimes use in, in talk that was forwarded to me by a form, former student uh, of, a, uh, of a bull and a little goat. And uh, they are 
pushing, you know, each, each other. And uh, the big bull comes and sort of pushes the goat off, and then the goat sort of recovers and goes push. And this little goat pushes, you know, <laughs> the big bull backs up with like 10 times the size. And then they sort of go back and forth on that. So role reversal, I think the function of it is to keep a social interaction going. It's like when we were playing with young kids, right? You don't play the game to win. Yeah. You handicap yourself. That's another aspect of, uh, of a role reversal is self-handicapping. So in this mm -hmm. case, the bull was deliberately not using its full force and strength in that interaction, but in, in a way inhibiting its abilities so that the goat, so because they both wanted to keep that interaction uh, going. And uh, I think, so role reversal and self-handicapping in a way go, uh, uh, go together as really important aspects of social play, things that we don't necessarily see in, uh, we don't see really in object and in, uh, in, in locomotor play but are really key parts of, uh, of social play that I think are really important. Uh, and we our, find it throughout the animal kingdom. Yeah, sure. Uh, so at the beginning, you were describing the sort of the five criteria or the five traits that we have to have set in place, let's say for play to occur. And one of them was that it is done in an environment that is free of stress. Are there other, let's say, prerequisites that uh, a particular or, or a set of conditions that have to be fulfilled for play to occur? Well, um, of course, all five criteria, in my, my opinion, need to be satisfied. Uh, but this uh, idea of a safe space or uh, the animal free from chronic stress. So hunger and social uh, uh, stress, chaos in a, in a, in a, in a, in a group uh, or disease, uh, these things can interfere with the currents of, of, of play. Uh, so why do you have clowns going to children's hospitals with really sick kids and so on as a way to sort of, uh, get them engaged and not just wallow in, 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 in the pain and the sickness, the illness that they're, uh, that they're confronting. Uh, so we have to then overcome with sort of more extreme measures this, these stress or other issues. As I mentioned, mild stress may be conducive to, uh, 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 to play and the conflicting different motivations and so on. Uh, part of creativity is that to solve sort of a problem. Well, that problem has a little bit of a, uh, some, some, some stress. But if you're overwhelmed, you're not going to be very creative. You're not going to be very, 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 very playful. Uh, so we take care of our athletes, <laughs> for instance. Uh, uh, make sure that, you know, they have a good place to stay and they got good meals and right uh, better than often universities take care of their other students because of uh, 
right now, for instance, football players here at Tennessee, uh, uh, they get a lot of tests for, uh, for COVID-19. Uh, None of us faculty <laughs> have had the opportunity to get a uh, 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 get, get tested. Uh, most of the students uh, get tested if you know they show some symptoms and and so on. Uh, but we sort of are taking care of of uh, of these uh, uh, parts of our society that uh, we want to make sure that they, in this case, to play right to play football. Yeah, uh, are, are there, is there any risk of anthropomorphization when we are sort of, I mean, I don't know, perhaps evaluating other species behavior and particularly more so when it is play behavior and perhaps distinguishing it from other types of behavior? Okay, well, uh, anthropomorphism is a major problem in studying uh, behavior, uh, but it's, uh, and we usually define anthropomorphism as uh, attributing human characteristics to non-human things. And we can do this, not just to other animals, to, to the weather, right? We can use anthropomorphic uh, uh, terms. And some people, including um, important Nobel Prize winning pathologist uh, Nico Tinbergen, uh, said we really can't study play as a scientific subject uh, because it's too subjective, too, too prone to anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's those kinds of thoughts that led to, well, we need these more objective criteria. Yeah. Now, anthropomorphism itself is. Uh, considered a sort of a sin in studying animal behavior. But on the other hand, it is also something that we are humans ourselves, and when we see a dog or a chimp engaging in a behavior, uh, wait, how would we feel? How would we respond? And we may use our ideas as, well, how would we respond in a situation to propose hypotheses, propose ideas that we could then, uh, uh, then study? And so, um, more objectively. So I've developed what I call critical anthropomorphism in which you don't deny our anthropomorphic tendencies, but we make sure that they are uh, looked at in a cautionary way by considering what is the other species social system that we're looking at? What are the perceptual abilities? What do they, uh, what's the normal ecology and social relationships? Uh, and, and so on. And uh, th this, I think, is very, uh, very important. And it comes from uh, um, my attraction to the work of Jakob von Juxkel and the idea of the animal's umwelt, that uh, all animals, including us, have our own personal worlds, our subjective uh, way we respond to environmental stimuli. And that part of our goal as a scientist is to understand how other species see their world, what their perceptual uh, world is. And uh, but we can only do that once we understand or at least appreciate that other animals have a world that yeah. we can't, just I can't get into your world, your mind totally, but I can certainly make some uh, attributions. I can look at their facial expressions. I can, uh, you know, look at your vocalizations, their postures and get some inclination that may 
be very useful to have in, in, in social interactions. And we can do the same thing in looking at other, uh, other species. So anthropomorphism is a danger, but it's also an opportunity when combined with our scientific knowledge uh, to uh, ask good questions. Yeah. Uh, what are the downsides and costs associated with play? Well, that's another really important issue in that play is not just all fun and games and a positive. We know that uh, in the field, uh, there's uh, been some interesting uh, examples like in lemurs of uh, very playful animals getting injured and uh, falling off of trees. You know, animals like to climb and swing and things. Uh, we know that uh, uh, there's a famous uh, study by uh, Harcourt uh, with seals uh, showing that uh, the major uh, mortality of young seals is when they're playing out in shallow water uh, uh, and sea lions come in and attack them. Mm -hmm. And they're so engaged in their play that they uh, don't notice uh, the, the predator coming. So, uh, and that's one of the features of play is that very engaging. You get, you know, really involved into the flow of the, uh, flow of the experience. So um, those, there are those costs, costs of accidents, costs of predation uh, that, that play can occur. And people with, you know, we're, get so parents sometimes get a concerned about their kids climbing trees. Oh, well, you might fall. Well, that is true. That's, but is that outweighed by some way by the experiences, the excitement the, of getting these types of experiences like climbing up and doing somewhat risky behavior? There's, there, there are other aspects of play where, uh, like in humans, uh, gambling right? It can be a serious issues. Uh, addictions. Uh, we can have behavioral addictions that may have developed out of what was initially play, but then becomes, you know, too chronic or too extreme. And uh, so I love to play cards. Uh, and, uh, but I haven't you know, lost my fortune or <laughs> put my house up for, <laughs> for, for, for sale to keep it. But we, there are lots of uh, examples out there of people who uh, have uh, really destroyed their lives by, uh, by gambling, which initially is a form of play, but then it becomes not play. When you see sometimes people at the slot machines, you know, putting mm -hmm. in nickel, you know, uh, uh, they're not looking very playful at all. It's almost it's an addiction or people who get involved in, in running or certain kinds of, uh, of behaviors initially maybe started as a play, but now become necessary. They have to engage in this behavior. Uh, drugs uh, might start off as something, hey, be playful, get some experiences that seem different. And then uh, it transitions into something uh, not good. Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is that, for example, in spiders, we find a pseudo-copulatory behavior. Is that also considered a form of play? Well, it fits all the criteria of, uh, of, of those five criteria of play. And a number of animals uh, uh, have uh, sex play. Um, and... Uh, 
a lot of primates, for instance, not human primates, uh, as, uh, as adults you find what they call non-sexual play and, uh, and, and, and sex play. And of course, what do we talk about in humans? Foreplay. <laughs> uh, and uh, so sex, particularly when it's not done for, you know, reproductive uh, uh, functions, certainly would, uh, would, would fit in the pleasurable, playful category, right? It fits all those five cri cri criteria. And so uh, that would certainly apply to others of the species and in, including the example of the spiders where uh, uh, these uh, social spiders uh, that a colleague here was working on and uh, uh, find that the males who engage in this behavior with the females, uh, that male survives much better. You know, in many spiders, the, uh, uh, the female attacks may kill mm -hmm. the, uh, the male uh, yes. after mating. And uh, what uh, a study showed is that uh, the males who engage in this uh, play with the female before she's sexually mature, Right, mm -hmm. they do this, uh, this, this, these playful interactions, sexual interactions that are not possibly reproductive before right. she's effectively mature. She, he has a much better chance of surviving when they do mate. And she, the female, lays larger egg cases. So it helps. It's one of the first examples showing a reproductive fitness advantage uh, to to play, not just a survival or a behavioral uh, skill advantage, but actually a reproductive fitness advantage. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. What about the surplus resources theory? That's another theory that is associated with play, correct? Well, um, that's something that uh, I came up with uh, based on uh, the old theory of uh, Spencer called the surplus energy theory, which mm -hmm. uh, was really attacked in many, many, many ways, uh, particularly by Gruz, the, the practice of the, the theory guy. Uh, but I thought there was some, uh, something there, but it wasn't just metabolic energy. Uh, we talk about resources. So we find that animals, uh, in, in, even in the same species, monkeys, uh, squirrel monkeys that live in a uh, environment where there's lots of food and uh, the animals doing really well uh, versus uh, other spider monkeys living in a population where uh, there's not much food, it's uh, the climate's harsher. You find much more play in the environment where the resources are, are good versus when they're, when they're not. And this has been looked at now in a wide variety of species showing that play seems to be much more frequent when uh, times are good. So when the animals have uh, adequate nutritional resources uh, and you know, predation you don't have to worry about as, as, as much. Uh, so that I think is an, uh, is, is an important, important factor. Mm -hmm. uh, so, focusing now on humans, uh, is play associated with certain aspects of human culture, like, for example, rituals, religion, 
and things like that? Well, I think that uh, I've argued that uh, um, many rituals, including in, in religion, uh, started as playful activities. And, uh, and you look at some of the definitions that have come out for ritual and compare them to play, there's a lot of similarity. Uh, and it could be that uh, behavior starts as play mm -hmm. uh, and then becomes more formalized, more widespread in a population and seems to then lose its playful elements and becomes maybe uh, more stereotyped, uh, more something that has to be done in a certain, uh, in a certain uh, way. Uh, so I think that's uh, <clears throat> one way we can see development of, of rituals. And those are, of course, cultural components. And I think that uh, uh, that play is a very important part of our culture. We can also look at different societies. And uh, those societies that are more hierarchical or authoritarian, uh, there's discrimination against artists, against open yeah. science, against things that we consider sort of playful activities, trying out new things. So in more hierarchical, uh, look, look at the, in Hitler's Germany, uh, degenerate art and, uh, and in, um, and in you know, Russia's, in, in Stalin's Russia, where the artists, the musicians, and so on really had to conform to certain types of uh, activities. Uh, mm -hmm. They couldn't be playful. They couldn't openly uh, develop ideas and uh, techniques and, 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 and so on. Uh, whereas in more democratic open societies, you have much more a chance for, for uh, playful activities activities. And we see that tension even in the United, United States and in, in, in some areas too. Uh, and what's interesting is that we find the same thing in animal societies. So that a uh, number of uh, work's been done by uh, people at Pelagi and Pellis and a variety of others who look at primate societies that in macaque monkeys, rhesus monkeys that are, you know, everybody knows about, they're the ones that most use in research. Uh, these animals uh, are very playful when they're young, but their societies are very dominance oriented and uh, there's not much play in the adults. In related macaque monkeys that have a much more egalitarian social system, they're not as hierarchically uh, oriented, there's much more adult play. And so I think that's a really interesting uh, a parallel between uh, social system and egalitarianism and play that we can see mirrored in experiences in our own, uh, in our own species. Mm -hmm. uh, but what if we start with a particular kind of play behavior and then it spreads among people that are part of a community, let's say, and becomes a ritual, for example, can we say that uh, it has some adaptive value and at what level? I mean, at the level of the individual, the group? Can we talk about, for example, group selection here? Um, that's a very good question. And uh, one that I must admit I haven't really thought 
uh, not that much about. Uh, one of the best examples of a play uh, is uh, Huffman's group's work on uh, stone, uh, stone trapping, hitting mm -hmm. stones together in uh, Japanese uh, macaques. Yeah. Yes, and that uh, they found this in a social group. We now find it in wild populations in several different species. But at that time, uh, this behavior had not been seen in this uh, group. Some animals started knocking stones together. And again, there's a pretty, it's a large enclosure, but there wasn't really much in there. But there were rocks. And that's something that I guess the monkeys started to hit together and the noise, you know. And then others started doing it and pretty much it spread. And now it is, is endemic in that group. And Huffman's group has uh, uh, presented data and argued that that behavior now has become very ritualized and has a social function in the, uh, in, in the society. Uh, so it's almost like play getting, giving a cultural component that uh, differs that group now from another uh, from, from other groups. Yeah. So I have here one last question that comes from a patron of the show, Diego Londonio Correa. And he says, I would like Dr. Burgard to talk a bit about sex differences in human and non-human animal play. Okay. Uh, there's been quite a bit of, of research on, on that. And uh, in some species, like the bears I looked at, <clears throat> bear cubs, both males and females, are super, super playful. Um, I don't think there's any sex difference uh, there. Uh, but in many uh, animals, uh, the, uh, there are, including non-human primates, where uh, Maxine Bibbin has uh, looked at this and uh, some monkeys, uh, that the males engage in much more rough and tumble sort of rough play and the females more laid back sort of uh, less aggressive kind of, uh, of play. And uh, there are of course lots of uh, studies on humans, young children and so on, showing that uh, uh, there's very little difference between the, the sexes until maybe a certain age, six, eight or so, where males become much more involved in really vigorously active uh, and fighting more type of, 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 of play more than more than females. Um, there's been studies on uh, playgrounds, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, looking at uh, when the kids go out for recess, what males and females do, and there's uh, there's obviously overlap, <laughs> but. Uh, there clearly seems to be sex differences right there. Uh, and then there's the whole idea, well, males play with, you know, trucks and yeah. thing, guns and females yeah. play with... Uh, with things, basically, right? And perhaps females prefer things that resemble people. Right, or uh, dolls and care. And so the, yeah. one of the early studies uh, argued that, well, uh, girls engage in they're interested in dolls and so on, uh, because that's a presaging their maternal uh, behavior, uh, males engaging in uh, playing with uh, mechanical things and uh, 
presages their interests. And then, of course, others have argued, well, it's just a matter of socialization. It's just a matter of what you're exposed to uh, as young. We raised twin identical twin girls. Uh, <laughs> and um, who are both scientists now, and uh, we're proud, proud of them. Uh, but we made a specific effort uh, to uh, expose them to uh, uh, the same kinds of, of, of toys that uh, boys would be, be exposed to. And I think this uh, certainly maybe helped facilitate your interest in science and doing things like, uh, like, like that. But interestingly, there are some studies now with monkeys <clears throat> showing that uh, young male monkeys uh, prefer to play with trucks and that, and females uh, monkeys are more interested in doll-like things. Um, so I think it's a combination of uh, some evolutionary sources of differences, sex differences in, in playful tendencies, and cultural and social uh, factors that can accentuate or uh, inhibit those differences. Mm -hmm. So do you think that play is, is a thing from which we can extract uh, data or information to learn a little bit more about how sex differences evolved? I think that um, that's certainly possible, and uh, but I don't study non-human primate play or kids play that much, and so uh, I think it's going to be based on a lot of comparative studies. Now, Serge Pellis and his wife Vivian have been uh, looking at play and going around the world, recording play in zoos of virtually all the primates. And I'm looking again in the young animals and, and the adults. And I think this type of work may lead us to get some ideas as to the nature of sex differences in, in, in play and their origins uh, within the primate lineage. And again, because of the heterogeneous nature of play, I don't think that what we find in you know sex differences in play and uh, in, a, in a rats are going to maybe necessarily translate into uh, the origins of, uh, of sex differences or functions of sex differences in, uh, in play in, uh, in, in non-human primates. So I think they're very careful about extrapolating from across species. Yeah. Okay. So Dr. Burgard, before we, we go, are there any good places on the internet for people to find your work? Um, I think you could just uh, write me. I'm, uh, I think I'm on the, on the internet e easily. Uh, my web page is out of date, and I, uh, but through the university, uh, both the Department of, <coughs> Department of Psychology and EB, uh, they have uh, uh, websites that list a number of publications and contact in, in information. And uh, one of the things, by the way, is that the internet now is just full YouTube and so on with neat examples of play. People have been finding play among different species, uh, 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 chickens and dogs and cats and, and rabbits and uh, all different kinds of animals playing with each other 
which uh, I think is really interesting because it shows that there's a commonality and in interpretation that, that you know, animals of <laughs> quite widely different species somehow can interpret uh, signals and communicate uh, across wild, wide ch uh, chasms. Tortoises and dogs uh, are playing, for instance. And um, there's a neat thing about uh, a lizard and a uh, bearded dragon and, uh, and a dog playing tug of war. I mean, animals that you would not really think that much are um, a deer and, uh, and a kangaroo, big kangaroo and kangaroo uh, uh, interacting. Each, of course, have to use their behavior abilities that they have. Mm -hmm. but they can interact with, uh, with a, another pretty uh, different uh, species. And I think uh, that's a really interesting thing. So keep your eyes open for, uh, uh, for, for what's on the, on, on, on the web, uh, because uh, uh, people with their cameras now, they can uh, all of a sudden see things and, uh, and, and, and post them. And uh, it really, I think, has from as compared to 30 years ago, the wealth of examples that we have now of, uh, of, of play uh, in animals and is, is just mind boggling in many respects. And I think is really uh, promoting uh, a better understanding of play and research and scientific interest in play, which as I mentioned earlier, is something that uh, was really lacking in my opinion for uh, almost the first century of study of animal behavior. Yeah, uh, so uh, those examples that you mentioned of a sort of interspecies play, uh, could that indicate a common base, a common evolutionary basis for play between or among those different species? Well, um, I don't know if it means that you know the the origins of the play in those uh, two species, those species are the same, uh, or whether there's convergence that because of okay. uh, social similarity and their uh, social relationships and uh, behavior that allows them to, uh, to, to, to connect. I mean, the goat and the bull being, uh, you know, more closely related and having budding kind of uh, behavior part of the repertoire, uh, that could be maybe from a common origin, but be between the lizard and the dog, uh, probably not so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. Burgart, let's end the interview here. And it was really nice to have you on the show. And thank you for taking the time. Well, I really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, thank you for uh, your uh, really intelligent discussion here. That uh, uh, I think play is something that uh, we need to take seriously, but playfully. Okay, let's end on that note then. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to consider making a pledge on Patreon. I have the link in the description box or on PayPal. You can also find the links there. And uh, otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters on PayPal.
Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Baroga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunde, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnold Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alanius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert uh, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslam Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roch, Dmitry Grigoriev, and Diego Londonio Correa, my producers, Isar Webe, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardas Friends, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.